Today's scripture reading is from Book of John, chapter 17, verses 16 to 11. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the reading of God's word. Well, it's good to see everybody here. It's kind of warm in here, isn't it? I think uh, it's got this unexpected warm weather today, and the, I think they didn't adjust the temperature quite well. But nevertheless, it's good to see you here. Uh, those of you who are joining us online as well, just uh, want to welcome you to in the presence of, of the church. And... Um, hopefully um, be able to worship together. Um, <coughs> we are in our passage here, as was just read by, in John chapter 17, and um, if you were here with us last week, we were talking a lot about identity uh, as an extension of, of understanding what it is our sin is and the fact that we are naturally ingrown people and that our identity and who we are is, is found inwardly. So the world says, who are you? And you say, in order to find the answer, you look inside yourself. What do you think? But the Bible says, no, no, it, 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 your identity comes from outside of you, not inside. And as we say, God says, what do I think? And, um, and we talked about that last week, but we're transitioning from that. And now we're moving into a, a new series. And today is more of an introduction, but it's a really a segue from last week into this new series on the church an important, I think, topic, especially these days, um, to understand, again, not just what church is, but what we are, a Sojourner Presbyterian Church. What are the things that we do? Why do we do them? And uh, who are we exactly? And so we start here from the Gospel of John in chapter 17, and this is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And it's a long prayer that Jesus prays, not just in verses 6 to 11, but the whole chapter. And so we're going to actually kind of look briefly at the whole chapter. But it's a prayer uh, that he prays moments before he goes to the cross, moments before he dies, okay? Three things I want us to see here just to help us to keep focus, and that is this. Number one, who prays, right? Uh, I mean that literally, but also mean sarcastically. Who prays? Number two, who is this prayer for exactly? And number three, what exactly does this prayer then teach us today? Who prays? Who is this prayer for? And what exactly is this prayer teaching us? Okay, so let's look at this. First point, who prays? Who prays? Did you know, according to the Pew Research Center, a dedicated church prayer meeting is a thing of the past. Overall, when you look at our country, it's a thing of the past. There are churches that still try and do it, but even, they say this, even if a church still has a dedicated prayer meeting, it's the least attended meeting in the church. 
Who's praying? I mean, who, who prays? And that's the question that we might need to ask ourselves today. Who today really prays, takes time, right, consistently, regularly, spend time with God in prayer, fervently? And the question I would ask you, do you do this? Do, do I do this? Do we do this? And I think there are many reasons why we probably, if we're struggling with this, there are many reasons we don't pray. Some of us, we refuse to pray. Some of us, because of theological reasons, well, what's the point of praying if God is sovereign and he's in control and he's going to do what he's going to do anyway, and so why should I pray for anything? Some of us, we're just too busy. Oh, my life is too busy to make time to pray. Others of us, we're just plain lazy. I don't want to sit down and be quiet and silent and pray and all these kinds of things. Or maybe we don't pray because we just don't feel the need to pray. Here's what I think this passage shows us in a very surface reading. Uh, you know, in my previous church, it was a big, very big very Korean church. And I remember when I got hired there, I was interviewed by one of the elders. He was a very elderly man. That's why he's an elder, um, I guess. But he was an elderly man. He seemed very godly. Uh, I immediately began to respect the guy. He interviewed me. He told me what the position was. It was a youth group position. And, and um, you know, I, I, I got the job through him. I didn't even meet the senior pastor until, you know, two or three weeks later after I got the job. I didn't even know what he looked like. I just knew this one person, and to me then, he was my sort of boss or figure of authority. And then one day, on a Sunday morning, as I was talking with this elder, along with a bunch of other older elders, I'm like, at this point, 27 years old, and everybody else looked like they were 60s and 70s, and, and they were all, they're all just talking together in the parking lot, and all of a sudden, this black car drives by. It looks like a limousine. I'm like, who in the world is that? Right? And out of that black car walks out this probably around five foot four, five foot five, frail old man, looked older than the elders, right? Had no hair, right? Comes out of the car, and I had no idea who that was. And all of a sudden, all those elders, even the one that interviewed me, the one that I really respected, they lined up, and all of them bowed down 90 degrees <laughs> as this little man walked by. And I was standing there, and I was thinking, who is this guy? He doesn't look very impressive to me. I don't know who he is. But here's the thing. Because the elders that I respected bowed down 90 degrees, I did the same. Because if I don't know who he is, but these guys know who these are, and I respect these guys, then there must be something about this guy that deserves this kind of respect. Here in our passage, Jesus bows, not 90 degrees, he bows his head, he prays. Now I know I'm no Jesus, and I know for a fact you're not Jesus, but if Jesus, the Son of God, has to pray, if even the Son of God feels the need to pray, it must mean I need it more than I think. 
It must mean that if he bows his head to pray, then it is fitting that a follower of Jesus ought to bow his head in prayer along with him. Who do you think you are that you don't need to pray? But Jesus does. Who do you think you are that you can control and manage everything in your life without dependency on the one who is and was and always will be in control? Who do you think you are that even the Son of God has to pray, but you don't? Who prays? Jesus prays. Jesus prays. Now, here's the good news. When you look at this whole chapter, okay, I'm going to just summarize really quickly. First five verses, he begins his prayer, Jesus prays for himself. First five verses of this chapter, he prays for his mission. He says, Father, the hour has come. It means that the time has come for me to give my life. He prays for himself. Verse 6 to 11, which was just read, he then prays for his disciples. The one, according to verse 8, who received what he said and believed what he said. So he prays for his disciples. But if you kept reading this passage in, in chapter 17, you look at verse 20, he says, I don't only pray for them, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. So he prays for himself. He prays for those disciples that were following him at that point in time. And then he says in verse 20, I don't just pray for them. I'm praying for everyone in the future who will believe in me through them. That's us. That's us. And the good news here then is this, that you and I, we, we might struggle to really pray, but the truth of the matter is he has prayed for you. Jesus has prayed for us. And I think this shows us what a good pastor, what a good pastor Jesus is, our high priest. You know, Hebrews chapter 7 says this, that Jesus is able to save completely who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to pray for them. He didn't just pray for us here in chapter 17, but Hebrews says he's always praying for us. I mean, I might not pray enough, I might not pray enough, but it's encouraging to know that Jesus is praying for me and continues to pray for me. And it teaches us something, that one reason that therefore we ought to pray more for or with or even on behalf of each other, two reasons. One is, it's the least we could do for someone who's going through a hard time. But secondly, isn't it encouraging? I'll pray for you. Hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you. I, I don't know your situation. I don't know everything that you're going through. But I want you to know I'm praying for you. Isn't that encouraging? But if Jesus, the Son of God, says, I'm praying for you, 
I'm praying for you right now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm praying for you. How much more encouraging is that? How much more effective will that prayer be? How much more powerful will his prayer be for us? Who is it that prays? Well, I hope you do, but I want you to know this. Jesus does. God's eternally begotten Son, the Savior of the world, the great high priest, prays. And so should we. First point, who prayed? It was Jesus Christ. Second point, who's this prayer for, though, exactly? Right? You know, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 19 to 21, listen to this. This is what Paul says in this letter to the Ephesians. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In, the home, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into the holy temple of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives a description of the church. And it's made up of people. But there's a structure to those people. He says to the church in Ephesians, you people, you members, are the church. But you stand on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And Jesus is the cornerstone. And together, you grow into the holy temple of the Lord. That's the church. That's the church, right? But look at our passage. In verses 1 to 5, John chapter 17, Jesus prays for himself, his mission. Verses 5 to 11, he prays for those disciples, the apostles. Verse 20, he prays for the rest of us who will believe through their word. That's us. In other words, this prayer, this whole prayer that Jesus prays is for the church. It's about the church. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. It's his mission to give his life for what? The church. And his life and death is the very foundational message, the cornerstone of the church. Verses 6 to 11, he prays for the disciples who are going to go out in the world to do what? To share that message. To do what? To build his church. Verse 20, through that message, all of us who hear by faith believe in what, to hap what happens. We become part of that church. And so this whole prayer that Jesus prayed, this whole chapter, chapter, I'd argue, is about the church. It's for the church. It's on behalf of the church. Okay? Who prays? Jesus Christ. But who does he pray for? It's about the church. Third point. So these two simple points. What does that teach us today? What does that teach us about us and about the church? Two things. Okay? First, it shows us how important and essential the church is. I mean, obviously you're saying it's important because Jesus is praying for it, right? But I want you to consider this. I want you to consider the time when Jesus is praying for this. This is chapter 17 in the Gospel of John. Do you know what happens in chapter 18? He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to then go to the cross, and he's going to die, crucified and die. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, the timing of it all. If you were in his situation where you know that you didn't have much time left in this world, what would you talk about? What would you think about? 
What would be on your mind? And you might be surprised how laser-focused you can be before you die. How laser-focused you can be in knowing what's really important to you. And I don't think you'll be talking about the football game. I don't think you'll be talking about your new purchase and what you want to buy. I don't think you'll be talking about or thinking about where you're going to live next or finding a new job or figuring out when to watch the new Batman movie that just came out. Or even what the weather's this like is going to be this week. Because unless those things are what's most important to you, those things won't be on your mind before you die. Maybe your family. Maybe your life. As you evaluate. Maybe you would think about afterlife. And maybe even God. But what is on Jesus' mind before he dies? What is one of the last things in one of the last prayers that Jesus prays for? What for Jesus is on his heart? It's the church. Most of what's on his mind and on his heart is the church. Verse 11, he says, I'm going to leave, but they're still going to be here on earth. So he prays. He says, Dad, keep them in your name. Keep these people together. Keep them in truth and love. Change their lives so that they might be one even as we are one. That was the main thing on his heart all the way to the cross. How important does something have to be that it's still something you pray for even before you die? And that's how important it is for Jesus. Now, practically, what does that teach us? What does that teach us? What does that mean for us today? What does it mean for the 80% of the people in our country when they're asked if they could be a good Christian and not be a part of the church and not go to the church and say, yes, we can? What does this teach us about that? What do we say to that in light of John 17? Can you be a good Christian without a church? First of all, I don't even know what people mean or think when they say good Christian. What does that exactly mean? I mean, Luke 18, Jesus tells, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. So I don't know what people think about or what you think about when you think of a good Christian. But let me just take this question one step further. Can you even be a Christian without the church? So this is what I think. I think that the 80% of people, what they mean when they say, I can be a good Christian without the church, what they mean is this. I can live a good and decent life as Jesus wants without being part of the church. I think that's what they mean. And I want to challenge that assumption because if you read John 17, if the main thing on Jesus' heart is the church, if his main mission that he prays for is to create the church, if his prayer for the disciples and us is to build the body of the church, his community, his church, then can you say as a Christian that it's fine not to go to church in any way? My answer is no. No way. 
And I know this is rubbing some people the wrong way, especially the narrative of our own Western culture where I hear it over and over again. I like Jesus, but I just don't like the church. Jesus is great, but the church, eh, not so much. And there are different reasons. Well, one reason is because there's some crazy people that go to church. There's some mean people in the church. There's some really messed up people in the church. I like Jesus, but I just don't like them. And that's unfortunate, but I'm going to be honest, it's true. It's true. There's some mean people in the church. There's some messed up people in the church. But if you know anything about this thing called sin and sinners, then, then you've got to know that's expected. And then I hear, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church because historically speaking, the church has messed up a lot. The institutional church has messed up. You know, institutional, institutional. I mean, first of all, like, what church are you talking about? Are you talking about the immigrant Korean church? Is that the institutional church? Are you talking about the Western American church? Is that the institutional church? What about that underground church in China that are being persecuted just for reading a page of Scripture? Is that the institutional church? What about the church in Africa and Cambodia where there's a bunch of made of teenage kids? Is that the institution? I mean, what is the church? But I'm going to be very honest. Historically speaking, the church has messed up a lot. It's sad, but it's true. In the history of this country, in the world, it, we, the church, however you want to call it, did some bad things. It's absolutely true. You know, C.S. Lewis, um, who... I used to read a lot in college, and a lot of people, a lot of pastors quote, you know, he's the uh, author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, he, he's very famous. He's one of the brightest Christians you could ever read. I mean, if you want to start anywhere with his reading and you're not sure about Christianity, look at mere Christianity. Because he's, he's very bright, and the thing about Lewis is this. He loves Jesus, but he confesses he hated the church. He hated the church. He wasn't the church man that you think he might have been. And this is what he said about the church universal in the book, The Four Loves. He says this, quote, If ever the book which I am not going to write is written, it must be the full confession of Christendom and Christendom's specific contribution to the sum of human cruelty and treachery. Large areas of the world, he says, will not hear us, till we have publicly disowned much of our past. Why should they? We have shouted the name of Christ and enacted the service of Moloch. Moloch is an idol, a false god, a demon. That's what he says. It's true. But what Lewis goes on to say is this. Though the church has messed up two things. One, we need to own up to it. There needs to be justice. There needs to be repentance. But two, where we have messed up is furthest from what he saw in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that needs to be addressed. So I get it. I understand why some people might conclude, well, I like Jesus, but I just don't like the church, whether it's because of the people, whether it's because of, you know, the, the, what they've done in history, whatever the case. I understand. I, I empathize in a lot of ways, Okay. 
But here, when you look at John chapter 17, can you conclude, therefore, as a Christian and say, I like Jesus so I can follow Jesus but not go to church? Can you say that? Can you conclude that? You can't. Why? Because that conclusion doesn't gel with what we just saw here in our passage. You can't square that conclusion with this prayer and Jesus' concern and love for the church. If the main thing on Jesus' heart is the church, if his whole life mission was the church, his body, his community, to say, I like Jesus, but I hate the church, is to say, I like Jesus, but I hate everything he was about. It's hypocritical. And I want you to know, just so that we're clear, I don't think he's talking about, I don't think Jesus had in mind you showing up to church. And that's it. I don't think his concern for the church is you just stopping by and showing your face. Maybe get some inspiration. Go home and then just do your thing. I think he's talking about more than just attendance. I think he's talking about involvement. I think he's talking about a deep involvement, the kind of involvement that requires blood, tears, and sweat. The kind that's involved with the good, but also the bad and all its messiness. Why should you do this? Not because it's your church. Not because it's Pastor Francis' church, but because it's still his church. His life, his blood poured out for it out. His promise to keep it, to grow it, to clean it, to make it mature, to glorify it. So that it is impossible to say, I'm following Jesus, but I'm not involved at all. I'm not involved at all in any church. And the very best, it's unhealthy. The second thing I think this prayer teaches us is this. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this. Jesus says, I am praying for them, the disciples. I am praying not for the world, but for those who you gave me, for they are yours. Jesus says he's praying specifically for the church, but not the world. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus doesn't care about the world? He only cares about the church? No, it doesn't mean that. I mean, in the same book, you look at John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. It doesn't mean that. So what does he mean? When he prays this, he prays specifically for the church and not the world. What he's doing is he's making a distinction between the church and the world. And that means that the church ought to be in some way distinct from the rest of the world, different. Which practically means that there should be something different about the church than the rest of the world. Now, what is that difference? What is that supposed to look like? The answer is at the end of verse 9. He says, I am praying for them, not for the world, but for those you have given me. Why? Because they are yours. In other words, whatever the difference is, whatever the distinction is, and there could be many, 
Whatever that is, it will show that we, the church, belong to Him. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Right? Do you remember last week? When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and we're talking about sex and the body and all that stuff, remember last week where Paul says to them, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God. You remember that last week? The world says you belong to you. God says you belong to me because Jesus paid a price. So glorify me. For Paul... The identity of belonging makes a distinct, different choice in the very practical matters of even physical relationship for his glory. But here in our passage, we can see where Paul got his idea. Paul derived his thinking from from Jesus Christ because Jesus said the same thing in his prayer. He prays not for the world, but for the church. He makes the distinction between the church and the world simply because... Jesus says the church belongs to him. They are yours. Again, it's an identity issue. It's an identity of belonging. But the difference here in our passage is this. Unlike Paul, it's no longer just you. For Jesus, it's about us. Look at the pronouns over and over again. They, them, pray for them, right? Keep them, that they would persevere. Pray for them, them, they, they. And finally, he says, we. Not just I, not just you, not just me, but now us and we. And that tells me something. Not only about my identity, but our identity. Not only about who I am, but who we are. Now follow me. This is the point. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I no longer belong to me. I belong to him. But because in John 17, Jesus tells us we belong to him. We are his church. We are his community. We are his body of believers. Different parts, different functions, but inseparably connected to that one body. It means not only that I belong to God, But because I belong to God, it also means I belong to you. And you belong to me. You see that? I mean, how distinct, how different is it? How difficult can that be in comparison to the rest of the world? Even if I want to belong to God, I'm not sure I want to belong to you. Even if, I, even if I want to belong to God, I'm not sure you want to belong to me. But I think this is part of what Jesus is praying for when he prays for us, the church. Again, let me, let me refer to you to Lewis again. You know, uh, I told you already, although he was a real brilliant man, he, he wasn't a church man. He didn't necessarily like the church, especially during his time. And so he had to make himself go He was repelled by what he saw in the church. Not just the universal church and all its injustice, but even the local church. Do you know why he didn't like going to his local church? Because he found the sermons boring. Because he didn't like the music, right? All they did was hymns and organs. He called those musics fifth-rate songs put to sixth-rate lyrics, right? And and he didn't want to go. And that's all they did. 
But he ended up going anyway. And you know why? This is what he says. Quote, When I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my room and reading theology. And I wouldn't go to the churches or the gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were still just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint wearing elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. Worshiping in that center or in that community gets you out of solitary conceit. This is what he's saying. Lewis found that trying to do Christianity with a body of believers... The church did something for his faith that he himself could not do on his own. He found that trying to do Christianity alone without the body is not only lacking and and short-sighted, it's arrogant. Solitary conceit, he says. It's arrogant to think you could do Christianity without the church. That's what he learned. So this is why Jesus prays, not just for you, but for you and you and you, for for all of us, okay, for us. And that means this, that you were saved, not just from yourself, not just from judgment, but you were saved from yourself into a body, into a community, which we call the fellowship of the saints. So the question that we're going to end with is the same question we ended last week. When I asked you, if your identity is that you belong to Christ, how do you show that? And it's the same question we need to ask ourselves. If we are to be distinct from the rest, how do we do that? How do we glorify God in the body? Not just Jesus, but now we need to pray and ask, how do we let others know that we've been forgiven. How do we, who have been saved by grace alone, loved unconditionally, received an identity that we did not achieve, but we received by grace alone, forgiven and loved unconditionally? The question we ask today as a church is this, how do we let others know that we belong to him? That's what we need to ask. This is the introduction. We'll get into a lot more. You're not going to like it as much maybe, but I think it's important. And I think we need to pray uh, for ourselves as individuals, but also for the church to which you belong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your patience. And as you show us and as you teach us, as you remind us, Lord, Uh, of what you have done. We pray that you would continue to burden our hearts beyond ourselves and into the lives and into the people around us, whether it be in the church and outside the church and around the world. I pray, God, that you would wake us from our slumber, 
as we are mesmerized by the image that we see in the mirror. I pray that you would raise and lift our heads so that we might look to you and see what you have done and said so that then we might lower our heads in prayer, praying not just for our lives, but our loved ones, our church, and even the world. And we pray, Lord, that we would live in such a way that would reflect, not just me and myself and I, but we, us, ourselves, would display the glory of God and show the world who we belong to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.